so delighted that we have the opportunity to come together again in the Lord's house and to give our attention to Paul's epistle to the Romans, which, of course, was his magnum opus, in which we have the most extensive exposition of the New Testament gospel that is found anywhere in the Bible. And it's been a pure delight and pleasure for me in these many weeks up to this point to look closely at the central motif of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And in the last couple of times we were together, we looked at the beginning of chapter 5, which tells us of the consequences or the benefits that derive to us from our justification. And so tonight we're going to continue looking at that in chapter 5, picking it up in verse uh, 3, although actually I'm going to go back to verse 1 and just repeat it. It won't hurt because I'm only going to read through uh, verse 5. So if the congregation will stand for the reading of the Word of God, we'll read Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith unto this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, the Word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Again, Father, as we give our attention to the weighty matters that are set forth in this epistle, we plead once more for the assistance of the Holy Ghost that he might stoop to our weakness, our frailties, that he may illumine this text to our understanding and use these words to pierce our souls and to set our feet on high places and flood our hearts with joy unspeakable. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, we recapitulate, remembering that the first two consequences that Paul mentions of our having been justified is that we have peace with God and that we have access into uh, His presence. And before we move on to the next consequence or result, I want to just backpedal for a moment and touch lightly on a couple of points in those first two verses that I didn't have an opportunity to really uh, expound earlier. Just remind you that the benefits that accrue to us here as a result of our justification come to us 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as our justification is by faith, by faith and grace because of Christ, then it's also by means of His ministry to us through His work in us that we are able to enjoy these benefits of peace with God. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the peacemaker. He is the one who's affected our reconciliation with the Father, and we receive the legacy, as we saw before, of His peace. And also the access that we now have to God is through Him, and as we mentioned before, at the time of His death, the veil of the temple was rent in two dramatically and violently because of Christ's mediatorial work in our behalf, opening up for us the gates of paradise that we might enter into the presence of God. The only other point I want to mention before I get to the next benefit is Paul's mention that these things are those in which we stand. That is, that is the standpoint of the Christian. Our standing before God is as those who have been covered with the righteousness of Christ, have been declared just in His sight, have had our sins remitted, and our uh, guilt satisfied by Christ's atoning death. And so we are given a standing before God which allows us access to Him and allows us to stand comfortably and confidently in the posture of peace. Now that again is just recapitulation of what we've already looked at. So now this evening let's look at the next benefit that accrues to all of those who have been justified. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now this portion of the text is a little bit difficult. I find it difficult every time I try to deal with this uh, clause in Romans 5. I uh, struggle a little bit because the phrasing of it is a little bit awkward, and the language that is used here is also in a kind of strange relationship. But the third point of our benefit is that we are able to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, there are three words in here, in this little phrase, that are vitally important that we properly understand. The first one is the word that is translated by rejoice. Again, I was a little picky this morning with... uh, Uh, Translators of Mark's Gospel, now let me continue in that same vein of being a little obstreperous in these details. This word rejoice that's in the English text here doesn't quite get it. It's more than rejoicing. The word that is used here is not the normal word for joy or rejoicing. It's the word actually that is more often translated by the word boasting. And so it is also translated, in fact, in the Greek, there's sort of a play on words, is also in the Latin text the same play, only in a different language. 
that what, what, the, what uh, Paul is saying is, is that one of the results of our justification is that we glory now in glory. That we have a sense of celebration and ecstasy beyond normal levels of joy. And the, the target of that joy is our hope that is directed towards the manifestation of the glory of God. Again, in the Greek, we have the noun for glory, doke or doxe, and we also have the word doxology that comes from it. When we sing the doxology, we sing praises to the majesty of God. We are glorifying God. So we are in an act of verb, uh, of an activity of glorifying the one who possesses glory. That's the, pray, that's the play in words there, both in the Latin and in the Greek. And so, again, Paul is saying is that once we're justified, one of the things that really turns us on, one of the things that delights us and causes joy to fill our soul is to contemplate who God is. That our greatest delight is in His character, in His glory. And again, let me just take another minute or so to talk about the meaning of that glory. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament frequently speaks about the nature of God when He manifests His glory. And the word for glory in the Old Testament is the word kabod or kavod sometimes it's uh, rendered. And literally, in the original Semitic language, it means weightiness or heaviness. So when we speak about the glory of God, we speak about a being whose very being is not light or insignificant, but it's substantive. It's heavy. And we use that language, don't we? If somebody says something that we think is profound, we might shake our head and say, that was heavy. And we don't like to be taken light of. We like people to take us seriously. Because the idea of God's glory is tied here with God's dignity, His gravity. And again, there is a, a link in the original languages between the gravity or weightiness or dignity of God and His august nature. You know, I keep harping on the whole principle of worship and that the purpose of worship when we come together is to ascribe glory to God, to honor God, to revere Him, to adore Him in the excellence of His being. Now, 
the great Saint Augustine, when he talked about worship, and when he talked about music, for example, in worship, he was not narrow in his selection of what kind of music is fitting in worship. He had a wide range of that which is acceptable and so on. And he said there are all different kinds of of strains of music, different styles, different types, and so on. But no matter what style or type of music we use in the celebration of God's glory, there ought to be some connection between the glory of God and what Augustine called the gravitas or the gravity or weightiness of the means by which we worship Him. And sometimes we can just get too familiar in the way we worship God, forgetting who He is, the weightiness of His very being. Now, what Paul says is that the third benefit of justification is once you are a justified person, once faith has taken hold of your heart, and you now perceive the things of God in a way totally different from how you did in your natural state, now it is your delight to glorify Him, to ascribe majesty and weightiness, gravity to who God is. Now, the other word that is used in that phrase is the word hope. And we speak of the hope of glory, which refers to the hope of the final manifestation of God's glory when He will be all in all. And something is is created within our souls the moment we come to faith, and that is this whole dimension of hope. Now, so much of what I've read tonight deals with this whole subject of hope, and I'm just going to mention a little bit about now, and then as we go on for a few verses later, Paul will unpack a little bit more about what hope means for the Christian. We're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, where the triad of Christian virtues is celebrated, of faith, hope, and love. And the apostle says the greatest of these three is love. Well, as, as important as love is, we know that faith is not unimportant. And Paul said, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. And we understand, we've been working closely on the significance of faith. And we understand the importance of love. But so often, that third element in this triad of virtues is often overlooked in Christian experience. And that's the element of hope. And if there's any word in this chapter that's capable of radical misunderstanding by us, it's this word hope. Because again, The English language, it's not just translators here, but the English language doesn't quite have a word that corresponds to the word that Paul is using here in this letter, the Greek word elpis. Because when we use the word hope 
typically, we use it to describe a wish or a desire we have that something would take place that we are not sure is going to take place. You say, what are you going to do this next week? And I say, well, I hope I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, or I hope this is going to happen. And we sort of are like Alice in Wonderland where we take a deep breath and we close our eyes and clutch our hands together and say, I hope, I hope, I hope it'll happen. But the idea is the things that we hope for in this manner are by no means certain. They might not come to pass. There is always this element of doubt that clouds our English understanding of hope. But that's not at all the way that word functions in the New Testament, and not at all the way Paul is using the term that is translated hope in this text. Beloved, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are born anew to a hope that is the basis by which our whole confidence in living out the Christian life is established. Hope, the only difference between hope and faith is this. Faith looks to what has already taken place, and we put our trust in it, we have our confidence in it, and hope is merely faith looking forward. And the metaphor that is used in the New Testament to describe the nature of that hope that is uh, created within us when we believe is the metaphor of the anchor. Hope, we are told, is the anchor of the soul. Again, the nautical image that we find frequently in the New Testament, sometimes those who are unstable are compared to boats that have no anchor, that are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. They are characterized by vacillation, by uncertainty. But the hope that is planted in the soul by God the Holy Spirit is not like that. It's that which gives a foundation that gives stability, that gives assurance to us by virtue of the Holy Ghost. It's our anchor that keeps us from being blown all over the place. It's the hope that God is going to do in the future every single thing that He has said He will do. That's the fruit of justification, that that kind of hope, which is the anchor for your soul, is planted in your heart. So that justification, in a sense, is a down payment for all of the things that God promises us in His work of redemption. Again, hope is the creation of the Holy Ghost within us. And elsewhere, Paul will speak about the Holy Spirit giving to us the earnest or that down payment, the seal of the Holy Ghost that gives us total assurance for the future. Again, it's not taking a deep breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right. 
It's assurance that God is going to do what he says he will do. Uh, The great Princeton theologian, Charles Hodge, makes a contrast between the metaphor of the anchor and the metaphor of a spider web. And he said, what hope is not is a spider web. Because you can see a spider weave his web and might be amazed at the glory of that work of nature and see how effective the web can be to trap flies or bugs and that sort of thing and provide meals for the spider. But if you've ever seen a spider web outside, and you all have, and you don't like it, you can take a pebble and throw it against the spider web. It doesn't bounce back. It goes right through it. There's no weighty substance to a spider web. It's wispy. It's light. And a little stick can destroy it completely. But you can't do that with an anchor. So hope is not a spider web. It's the solid stability that anchors the soul. Well, then let's see what else Paul says about it. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice, glory, boast, whatever we find in that word. We also glory in tribulations. What? What? Paul saying, we enjoy afflictions? We delight in sufferings? Now remember, there's nothing more unnatural to us as human beings than to enjoy afflictions, to enjoy tribulation. Tribulation is something we seek desperately to avoid. But Paul says, when you're a justified person, When the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts, as we'll look at in a moment, and you have been changed by the power of the Holy Ghost, you have a whole new perspective on tribulation. You have a whole new view of suffering. Now you don't see suffering as an exercise in futility, something that takes away your hope. But once you have that anchor on your soul, the anchor holds when tribulation comes. Not simply that you have the capacity, like a stoic, to grin and bear it and endure all kinds of afflictions and tribulations, but goes beyond endurance to rejoicing. To rejoicing. In tribulations. Now, we have to be careful here. Paul was not a masochist, and he's not saying that tribulation itself is fun, and that tribulation is itself a joyful, pleasant, pleasurable experience. No, he's not saying that. But what happens as a result of our being justified, that even the tribulations and afflictions that we experience can be an occasion for joy. Above all, the fruit of justification is the presence of joy 
in the Christian life. You see, we have found the pearl of great price. And no matter how much pain we have to go through, no matter how much tribulation we have to endure, as bad as things may be over here, these things are not worthy to be compared with the joy that God has set before us in Christ. If we lose everything that the world can give us, we still possess that priceless pearl of our justification. And so because God has declared us just, because God has redeemed us, no matter what life throws at us, we are able to rejoice. I told the congregation a few years ago about an experience I had when I was a seminary student in a very liberal and higher critical type atmosphere, and I had the dubious honor of being invited my senior year to give the annual student sermon to the whole student body, to the faculty, and to the presbytery, because the presbytery would meet on this particular day at the seminary. So all the ministers in the largest presbytery of the Presbyterian Church were assembled in one place with the faculty and the students, and I had to speak. I spoke about sin, (laughs) and I spoke about different theories of sin that we had been taught in the seminary that sin was uh, uh, existential, inauthentic existence and things like that. And I said, well, we do everything in our power to destroy the, uh, whatever authenticity we might have to our existence. And, and others said that sin was simply an experience of finitude. And I said, we can't argue with the fact that we're finite, but we'll be finite in heaven when sin is abolished. And so to equate sin with finitude is a major distortion of biblical truth. And I said, in this Presbyterian body where they supposedly confess the Westminster Confession and the Catechism, I said sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And we're not going to be healthy as a church until we realize what our sin is. Now, a strange thing happened after that sermon. I was met at the chancel steps by a host of liberal students who said to me, that was incredible. We've never heard that while we were here. And they were thanking me for telling it like it was. And I thought, well, I can't believe that they are so receptive to what I've just said. And I was feeling pretty good until I got to the back of the chapel. And the dean of the school was irate. He was livid. And he grabbed me. And he took me and threw me against the wall in front of all the students and all the ministers. He throws me physically against the wall. And his finger was in my face. And he said, he said, that was terrible. He said, you distorted everything that the Bible teaches about sin, and you totally misrepresented the Reformed faith. And I, 
I was white as a ghost. No professor had ever yelled at me like that publicly or physically manhandled me. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, this guy was the dean. So, uh, of course, I went right, right away to Dr. Gerstner's office, my mentor, because I knew he had been there. And I said, Dr. Gerstner, here's what happened. The dean just threw me against the wall and said I distorted the Reformed faith. Is that true? And this big grin got on his face. And he said, oh, Roberto. Oh, this is your lucky day. I said, my lucky day. He said, oh, how blessed you are. I said, what are you talking about? He says, doesn't our Lord say blessed are those when people revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake? He said, don't you believe what your Lord taught you? That this should be an occasion of great joy. He said, I heard everything you said. And somebody said you distorted Reformed faith. He said, every Reformed theologian from John Calvin to B.B. Warfield are rejoicing in heaven this day for the sermon that was just preached in this place. And again, oh, you are so blessed. I said, you are so nuts. (laughs) But he understood what Paul was saying here. That once we are reconciled and we are justified, even when people slander us, when they wound us so deeply, and tribulation becomes our life, we can glory in it. Because of Christ and because of our justification. We glory in tribulation because we know what tribulation does. See, Paul understood because he believed in God, in the sovereignty of God, and in the providence of God, that there are no accidents in this world. And no matter how many injustices are heaped upon us, this side of heaven, they don't mean anything compared to the crown of glory that God has prepared for his people. He said, don't you know that when you go through afflictions and go through tribulations, you can glory in them because, not because you enjoy pain, but because you know what tribulation yields. You know what tribulation does. For most people, tribulation breaks their spirit, leads them to despair, causes them to abandon all hope, but not so the Christian. Tribulation, he says, produces perseverance. It's tribulation that puts muscle on our souls. It's tribulation that makes it possible for the people of God to persevere, not to give up, not to collapse. And not only that, perseverance produces character. 
an easy life does nothing to produce character. Character is forged in the crucible of pain. Character is built when we have no alternative but to persevere in tribulation. Because those who come out the other side are those whom God has built character into their souls. And the result of character is what? Hope. There it is again. People who are authentically joyful people are people who know where their hope is. And they have been through the crucible. They have been through the afflictions. They've been through the persecution. They've been through rejection from their friends. They've been through the pain. They have identified with the humiliation of Christ. They have walked with Him on the Via Dolorosa. They have been crucified together with Christ. And now are raised in His resurrection and participate in His exaltation. That's the hope that Christian character produces. And what about the result of that hope? Here's the best part. Now hope, that is this kind of hope that we're talking about, does not disappoint. Other translations read, do not make us ashamed. You know, it's an embarrassing thing in the world's idea of hope to invest all of your hope and all of your wishes in a particular enterprise only to see that enterprise fail. And when it fails, you are dashed into pieces. But the hope that we have from God never, ever will disappoint. It will never embarrass us. We will never have to be ashamed if we're putting our confidence and our trust in Christ. Now, I'll tell you something, folks. If you put your trust in anything else but Christ, you are destined, certainly, for disappointment. Wherever else you invest your heart and your hope, you will be embarrassed if it's not in Christ. That's the only hope that never shames us. Notice what the New Testament tells us, that if you're not in the faith, if you don't believe, if you're outside of Christ, if you are without Christ, you are without what? Hope. And you are destined ultimately to disappointment. I want to talk about that for just a minute by way of application. 
in all of our lives, we struggle with our weaknesses, the weaknesses of the flesh, our sin, and so on. One of the things I am ashamed of, one of the many things I'm ashamed of, in my own life, in my own lack of character at certain points, is I still have a hard time dealing with disappointments. Dealing with unrealized expectations. If I go on a trip and I travel across this country and I finally get to my destination and I'm tired and I just want to get to the hotel room and take a nap or something and I go to the desk and they have mislaid my reservation. I have a hard time with that. I want to have not road rage but hotel rage or something like that. And I notice watching babies develop. Our little ones, our infants, how quick they are to cry, to scream, to pitch a fit. And almost every time, it's because they're disappointed. They didn't get what they wanted. They were looking forward to something when they're two years old, when they're five years old, when they're six years old. They were looking forward to something for a long time. gets canceled. They can't handle it. They go bananas. But, you know, that never leaves us as we grow older. One of the hardest things to deal with in life is disappointment because our hopes have been dashed into pieces. But the hope that we have for the glory of God and for the ultimate victory of His kingdom will never let us down. Nobody's going to cancel that reservation or let it fall between the cracks. We can rely absolutely on God. And that's what we learn when we understand the gospel and we understand our justification. This is just one more fruit. And again, the hope is not going to disappoint us. It's not going to shame us. And Paul gives another reason for it, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Now, let's understand what he's saying here. He's not saying that our hope is never going to disappoint us or make us ashamed because the Holy Spirit has quickened within our souls such a deep and profound affection for God that no matter whatever else happens in this world, that affection that we have for God is going to carry us through. Now, beloved, one of the most important fruits of salvation is that the Holy Spirit kindles within our hearts a genuine religious affection. No question about that. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about our love for God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. He's talking about God's love for us. 
If there's any concept that is cheapened, as you hear me beating this drum over and over again, it's this idea of the love of God. I hear, it just drives me nuts when I hear ministers say, people indiscriminately, God loves you unconditionally. He loves everybody unconditionally. Baloney. There is a love of complacency, a love of affection that God only has for the redeemed. There is a special kind of love that God has for the justified. And that love that he gives to his justified adopted children is not an indiscriminate love in general that everybody gets unconditionally. No. It's a love that the Holy Ghost sheds abroad. It's God's love that he doesn't just feel for us And it's not just referring to the gifts that He gives us or the benefits that He pours upon us, but it is actual God's affection that God puts inside of you, His love for you. You see, that's what fuels this hope. That's what gives us our confidence that we're not going to be ashamed that we're going to be able to persevere, that we're going to be able to continue on and endure during tribulations and afflictions because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts now. Folks, again, what Paul is saying here is not simply that there's a little bit of divine love that God has touched you with in your soul. No, it's an outpouring of divine love that is lavished upon us by God. That He pours into your soul His love for you to such a degree that if the whole rest of the world hates us, we know that He loves us, has forgiven us, and has given us a hope that will never be ashamed. It's one of the works of God, the Holy Spirit. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God's love is given to you by the same Holy Ghost who is also given to you. So you see, with our justification, It's not like on Christmas we come to the tree and there's only one gift under the tree. The first package that we pick up is our justification. We open up that package and there's another package. Peace with God. Open up that package and there's another package. Access into His presence. Open up that package and another one where we rejoice in glorifying God the glory of God. Open up that package and then we find out that we can have joy in the midst of tribulation, no matter how things go. And then we open up that package and it tells us that that very tribulation gives us another gift, perseverance. Open up that package, tear off the ribbon, and there's another one. The perseverance gives us character. And the character, hope. 
that will never embarrass us, that will never disappoint. Finally, there's another package under the tree, and we open it up, and it's the love of God that is poured profusely into our hearts by the grace of God. All of these things are part of the gift of our justification. Wonder ye then at the doxological writing of the Apostle Paul who rejoices in these things over and over and over again. Because for Paul, Christmas never ends. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for all that is given to us in the gospel, all of the consequences and fruits of our justification, these things overwhelm us and fill our souls with joy and with delight. Amen.